This is the voice of the narrated Puritan podcast, a ministry of Puritan and Reformed audiobook narrations, and the podcast consisting of classes on an analysis of Christian experience and assurance of salvation. Today's topic is going to be spiritual gifts and the common influences of the Holy Spirit. Common influence as opposed to sanctifying graces or sanctifying influences. And to begin this lesson, I want to tell you a story about one of the most promising students at Trinity Ministerial Academy. Trinity Ministerial Academy were the ministerial training efforts at Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey for about a period of 20 years. And one of their best students, I'll call him Fred, he also preached at our wedding. Our wedding was in Montana at the time he was holding a pastorate up in Canada, but he had been already invited to Missoula, Montana to preach to the church there. He was the most promising, according to Greg Nichols, one of the professors at the academy, one of the most promising students as far as his giftedness was concerned. So much so, after his first two years in the academy during the summer, they sent him to another country to assist in a pastoral work there, so highly was he thought of. But as time went on, it turned out that he was living a double life. He was unfaithful to his wife, ended up divorcing her. And yet I remember when I first moved to Grand Rapids, because he was from upstate Michigan, I ran into him at Kriegel Youth's bookstore. He loved good books. We used to have some of the best conversations about very good old books. And yet I had noticed that as I saw him at church, after some time when he had moved back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, we weren't able to have the fellowship that we had in a bygone day. And I thought maybe it was me. Maybe I came on too strong about talking about books or whatever. Later on, I found out that it was him. He had abandoned the faith that he once professed. But what about his spiritual gifts? Well, let's talk about what spiritual gifts are and the difference between them and saving graces or the fruit of the Spirit. And I have open volume four of the collected works of John Owen. And he says, we may consider the difference between spiritual gifts and sanctifying graces. And he says, saving graces are the fruit or fruits of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22, Ephesians 5.9, Philippians 1.11. Now, spiritual fruits proceed from an abiding root and stock of whose nature they partake. There must be a good tree to bring forth good fruit. Matthew 7.33 No external watering or applications unto the earth will cause it to bring forth useful fruits, unless these are roots from which they spring and are reduced. The Holy Spirit is at the root of these fruits. The root bears them, and which they do not bear. Therefore, an order of nature is given to men before the production of any of these fruits. By this are they engrafted into the olive, are made such branches in Christ a true vine as derive vital juice, nourishment, and fructifying virtue from him, even by the Spirit. 
So he is a well of water springing up into everlasting life, John 4, verse 14. He is a spring in believers, and all saving graces are but waters arising from that living, overflowing spring. From him is a rooter spring, as an eternal virtue, power, or principle, do all these spiritual fruits come. With gifts, however, it is otherwise. They are indeed works and effects, but not properly fruits of the Spirit, nor are anywhere so called. They are effects of his operation upon men, not fruits of his working in them. And therefore many receive these gifts who never receive the Spirit as to the principal end for which he is promised. In other words, spiritual gifts can be conferred upon those who are unregenerate, outside of Christ, temporary believers. They don't receive the Holy Spirit to sanctify and make themselves temples to God. This renders them of a different nature and kind from saving graces. For whereas there is an agreement and coincidence between them in the respects before mentioned, and where is the seed and subject of them that is of gifts, absolutely, and principally of graces also, is the mind. The difference of their nature proceeds from the different manner of their communication from the Holy Spirit. So if it is possible for the non-elect, for the unregenerate to have spiritual gifts, we have to talk about the Holy Spirit's work behind this lesser work, called a twofold working of the Holy Spirit in this case. In a chapter in A.W. Pink's commentary on Hebrews, Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6, because it is said there that they were partakers of the Holy Spirit, and yet they fell away. How is that possible? Because you could partake of the Holy Spirit. You can experience the Holy Spirit's working through gifts, but there is no spiritual fruit at the very root of it. A.W. Pink wrote, Concerning the Holy Spirit's work with the non-elect, we begin by inquiring upon what is he work. We answer upon the faculties of men's souls. First, he works upon the understanding. There are in all men natural faculties of understanding will and affection. A man could not love God unless he had in him the faculty of affection. A stone could never love God. In Romans 1 verse 18, we read of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness, and what is there referred to is explained in what follows, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. Again in Romans 2, 14 and 15, we read, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these have not the law, are a law to themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness. The Holy Spirit is speaking here of men, according to nature, not grace. In his natural heart there is written the work of the law. By whom? But by the finger of God. Except for this, man would be destitute of moral light, for the fall robbed him of all light. Secondly, the Holy Spirit works upon the affections of the natural man. There is in a fallen man a natural devotion to a deity, this is evidenced by the fact that practically all of the heathen worship some god or other. Now let men bring their natural devotion to the scriptures, and they will come to know of the true God, and learn to reverence him as well. Yet, is that only nature improved? Through the word the Holy Spirit may, and usually does, convince its reader that the maker of heaven and earth is the true God, 
and therefore worthy of honor and homage. The fact is, though very few indeed recognize it. Again, there is in every sinner the natural recognition that his sins deserve eternal death, and that God, unless he be appeased, punish him. Doubtless many of our readers will feel inclined to call into question this last statement. But let our appeal again be to the word of truth. There we read, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they might commit such things are worthy of death. Now let us take note of how the Holy Spirit may work upon man's natural principles of the human soul, mightily raising them, and yet not changing a man's heart. Just as the rays of the sun shine in upon plants and the garden adds no new nature to them, but serves to aid their best development, so the Holy Spirit, when he deals with a reprobate, communicates nothing new to them, yet raises their natural faculties to their highest point. So, what could be the result? A person could be somewhat enlightened as to the truth of the scriptures, certainly could feel a conviction, could even feel some sort of delight in hearing the word without there being a change called regeneration, a change in the mind, the will, and the affections. To get into this further, I want to look at Thomas Goodwin's work on the Holy Spirit, his work upon the temporary believer. Turning to Thomas Goodwin's work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation, there's a chapter, and the title is The Highest Degree to Which a Temporary Believer Can Possibly Attain. Described by the Apostle Paul, Hebrews 6, which yet falls short of that saving work wrought in a sincere believer, dare spoken of by him. This is a context. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, and so on. The apostle sets before these Hebrews the most dreadful things about a temporary work and condition, what we call the common influences of the Holy Spirit upon the non-elect, which can include spiritual gifts, a temporary work and condition that is to be found in the Holy Bible, and yet any occasion he took for it, he does it with the greatest advantage for the comfort of the weak and sound Christian, and with the greatest tenderness that possibly so great a manner could be uttered in. In Book 7, Chapter 1, Thomas Goodwin talks about the difference of the Holy Spirit's work on temporary believers and those truly called believers, and that they differ in their nature and kind. And he does this by comparing Second Peter 1, verse 3 and 4, and Second Peter 2, verses 20 and 21. Let's read these two verses. First Peter 1, 3 and 4. According as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, and which are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is talking about the saving work of Christ and a believer. But compare how similar the language is that the Holy Spirit has worked upon a temporary believer. For it is described of them in Second Peter two twenty and 21. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. 
for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness and, after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. He says, I've set these two passages of the same epistle together, and by comparing the one with the other, you may easily discern that Peter would seem to speak somewhat like, yet, at the same time, differing things of two several sorts of professors and two several works in those professors of religion. In the second chapter, he speaks of such who profess religion and had once a work upon their hearts. They had felt something. There had been somewhat of a change, which caused them at first so to do and to break forth from the world, verse 18. That is, they really had escaped from them who live in error, or the common error of a natural condition, common to you, with other men. But now they were fallen away, and their latter end was worse with them than the beginning, verses 20 and 22. But in the first chapter, he speaks of, and to such who had obtained like precious faith with us, namely the apostles of Christ. And of each of these he seems to speak some similar things of both of them, and yet how distant they were in reality in their character. Of both the one and the other, he says, that they had escaped the defilements of the world, Second Peter 1, 3, 2 Peter 2, 20. He tells us that both of them were wrought upon and induced to this by one and the same means through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Insomuch as both are enlightened with such a knowledge of Christ as has a powerful impression upon their hearts, as it is said of these, Second Peter 2 verse 18, did thus fall away, that they did really and indeed and in earnest forsake those sins. Yet, how different is the state of these persons, the sum of which difference is reduced to this, that those of whom he speaks in the first chapter, that they were savingly wrought on, had such a knowledge of Christ as had thoroughly altered and changed the frame of their hearts, their very nature and dispositions, turning and transforming them from sin to a divine nature. The Holy Spirit's work, even on a non-believer, had prevailed to sever and part their souls from the power of inward lusts, as well as outward gross defilements. The prevailing knowledge of Christ had destroyed and rent the indentures that had been between the soul and these corruptions, for the word escaping speaks and has reference to freedom from the tyranny of a hard master, or as it is in verse 19 of chapter 2, of being servants of corruption. In these sincere believers, the divine power had cut the very heartstrings, liniments, and ties between their souls and their lusts, so far that their inward man had really parted with, and was delivered from the strength and violence of lust. But as to the other, or the temporary believer, or the work of the Holy Spirit, upon the non-elect, it is barely said that they had escaped the grosser defilements of the world, verse 20, that pollute men outwardly, in respect of which it is that they are said to have escaped from those that live in error. He mentions nothing to express that this work had reached to the destroying of lusts or alteration of their sinful natures, but their case was that of a runaway servant. They had made an escape from their masters, but the inward bonds and indentures were not cancelled, and so they were fetched back again. Verse 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption, 
for of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage, which he affirms more plainly, verse 22, comparing them to a sow that was once washed, which imports an external cleansing only, from the mire they wallowed in, which cleaves to the outward parts, but to escape the corruption that consists in lust, to have the sinful nature, the inward radical constitution changed. This is what they lack. So, the important question is here, if the Holy Spirit can work upon an unregenerate person, short of regenerating him, short of an effectual calling, how would I know the difference? Well, we said that only a regenerate person can have the graces, the evangelical graces, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which means when the Holy Spirit works upon a hypocrite, there is still remaining in his heart, because he hasn't been changed, enmity, hostility, and aversion to God. And so, in a work called Hypocrites Deficient in the Duty of Prayer by Jonathan Edwards, he describes this about the hypocrites calling upon God. They may do so for a while, after they have received, on notice, common illuminations and affections. While they are under awakenings, they may, through fear of hell, call upon God and attend very constantly upon the duty of sacred prayer. But after they have attained in hope and have made profession of their good estate, they often continue for a while in the duty of secret prayer. For a while they are affected with their hope. They think that God has delivered them out of a natural condition and given them an interest in Christ. But what he's trying to communicate here is they think it is so. They think God has delivered them. But it is only the common influences of the Holy Spirit. But Jonathan Edwards says, they never have a spirit of prayer given them, a spirit of adoption, a spirit of grace and supplication, but only the common influences of the Holy Spirit convicting, somewhat enlightening them. Hypocrites never had the spirit of prayer given them. They may have been stirred up to the external performance of the duty of secret prayer and that with a great deal of earnestness and affection, and yet always have been destitute of the true spirit of prayer. Why? Because they are not born again. At heart, they are still at enmity against God. Archibald Alexander, in his work called Thoughts on Religious Experience, says that these common operations of the Spirit of God may be experienced by those very early on, who may yet later on become Christians, but there is a common practical error in the minds of many Christians in regard to this matter. They seem to think that nothing has any relation to the conversion of the sinner but that which immediately preceded this event. And the Christian is ready to say, I was awakened under such a sermon and never had rest until I found it in Christ, making nothing of all previous impressions. Jonathan Edwards again to quote him, there are common influences of the Spirit, which are often mistaken for saving grace. Later he says, whether persons' convictions, convictions of sin, convictions of the truth of the Scriptures, and the alteration in their dispositions and affections, be in a degree and manner that is saving, is beside the present question. If there be such effects on people's judgments, dispositions, and affections, 
whether they be in a degree and manner that is saving or not, it is nevertheless a sign of the influence of the Spirit of God. The Bible rules serve to distinguish the common influences of the Spirit of God as well as those that are saving from the influence of other causes. So, because there is such a work called a common influence upon a temporary believer, that explains some of the chapter titles in Jonathan Edwards' work called The Religious Affections. There are no certain sign that religious affections are gracious, that they're very great, or that they are raised very high, or have great effects on the body. They cause people to be fluent, fervent, and abundant in talking of the things of religion. The persons did not excite them of their own contrivance and by their own strength. That they come with texts of scripture remarkably broad to the mind, or that there is an appearance of love in them. Persons having religious affections of many kinds accompanying one another is no certain sign. The comforts and joy seem to follow awakenings and convictions of conscience in a certain order is no sign, or that these influences dispose persons to spend much time in religion and to be zealously engaged in the external duties of worship. They dispose persons with their mouths to praise and glorify God, but that's no certain sign that could be the work of the Holy Spirit on a temporary believer who has given him a false hope. He still, in his heart of hearts, has said enmity against God, Romans 8, 7, because he hasn't passed from death unto life. But while he is under this delusion, false hope, with his mouth, he may spend a lot of time praising and glorifying God, that they make persons that have them exceeding confident that what they experience is divine and that they are in a good state or that the outward manifestations of them and the relation persons given them are very affecting and pleasing to the godly, is no sign. Let me read a little bit of this. It is no sufficient reason to determine that men are saints and their affections gracious, because the affections they have are attended with an exceeding confidence that their spiritual state is good and their affections divine. Nothing can be certainly argued from their confidence, how great and strong soever it seems to be. If we see a man that boldly calls God his Father, and commonly speaks in the most bold, familiar, and appropriating language in prayer, my Father, my dear Redeemer, my sweet Savior, my Beloved, and the like, and it is a common thing for him to use the most confident expressions before men about the goodness of his state, such as I know certainly that God is my Father, I know so surely is there is a God in heaven, that he is my God. I know I shall go to heaven as well as if I were there. I know that God is now manifesting himself to my soul and is now smiling upon me, and it seems to have done forever with any inquiry or examination into his state, as a thing sufficiently known and out of doubt, and to contemn all that so much as intimate or suggest that there is some reason to doubt or fear whether all is right. Such things are no signs at all that it is indeed so, as he is confident it is. Such an overbearing, high-handed, and violent sort of confidence as this, so affecting to declare itself with the most glaring show in the sight of men, which is to be seen in many, is not the countenance of a true Christian assurance. It savors more of the spirit of the Pharisees who never doubted, but that they were saints and the most eminent of saints, 
and were bold to go to God and come up near to him and lift up their eyes and thank him for the great distinction he had made between them and other men. And when Christ intimated that they were blind and graceless, they despised the suggestion of this. If we do but consider what the hearts of natural men are, what principles they are under the dominion of, what blindness and deceit, what self-flattery, self-exaltation, and self-confidence reign there, we need not at all wonder that their high opinion of themselves and confidence of their happy circumstances be as high and strong as mountains, and as violent as a tempest. When one's conscience is blinded and conviction of sin, killed with false high affections, and those forementioned principles let loose, fed up and prompted by false joys and comforts, excited by some pleas and imaginations, impressed by Satan transforming himself into an angel of light. When once a hypocrite is thus established in a false hope, he is not though of things to cause him to call his hope in question, that oftentimes are the occasion of the doubting of true saints. As first, he is not that cautious spirit, that great sense of the vast importance of a sure foundation, and that dread of being deceived. So how do we know the difference? And here is where Romans seven fourteen and 25 is so important. And what a weapon of the devil it is to convince professing Christians that this isn't the language of Christians. Let me read. For we know that the law is spiritual. Now, Paul here is speaking existentially. He says, I am carnal, sold under sin. Not that he was in fact so. He wasn't still under the dominion of sin. It's what it felt like to him. This is what it felt like. This is what he was experiencing. For he said, for what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. An unregenerate person who is only under the temporary influences of the Holy Spirit or the common influences of the Spirit that can be experienced even by a reprobate, cannot honestly say, I hate that I do. He says, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. An unconverted man cannot say there is, it is no longer I that do it, because it is him that does it, willingly, continually, under its dominion. He knows no other principle warring against it, not to conscience. That's not a work of grace. That can be experienced by unregenerate men. Paul says, for I know that in me, listen to the distinction, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I do not find. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. But an unconverted man cannot find a law that evil is present with him, the one who wills to do good. It's not just present with the unregenerate. It has full dominion over him. He cannot have any kind of a virtuous inclination any kind of a holy affection to God if he is still unregenerate, far less can he, Romans 7.22, delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But 
Deficiencies, another law in his members warn against the law of his mind. What's the law of his mind? The Holy Spirit enlightening the mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And in verse 24, he wants to be delivered from this body of death. So in John Owen's work on the mortification of sin, he distinguishes a reformation that is begun only by the convictions of the conscience and the Holy Spirit enlightening the mind short of saving faith. He says, unless a man is a believer, that is one that is truly grafted into Christ, he can never kill any one sin. I do not say unless he knows himself to be a believer. In other words, he doesn't have to have high assurance, but he does have to be a believer. Killing sin is a work of believers. You know what other attempts at mortification are made by Catholics and their vows, penances, and satisfactions? I dare say of them. I mean as many of them as actually live according to the principles of their church, as they call it. But Paul says of Israel regarding righteousness, They have attempted mortification, but they have not accomplished it. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. But those who, in obedience to their convictions and awakened consciences, attempt to stop sinning, are in the same state and condition. They attempt it, but they cannot accomplish it. But describing what men living under the temporary influences, the common influences of the Holy Spirit short of the new birth, he says, Many men are bothered deeply over their sin by the preaching of the word, the arrows of Christ striking them with conviction, or by some affliction having been made sharp in their hearts. These men will diligently set themselves against this or that particular sin with which their consciences have been most bothered or unsettled. But poor creatures, they labor in the fire, and their work is consumed. Now I'll continue, in the work of the Holy Ghost in our salvation, collected works of Thomas Goodwin, the work of the Holy Spirit upon the temporary believer, the difference between him and the true believer. Here's another difference, namely, the participation of a contrary divine nature. This divine nature clearly shows a change of nature. And so their heaven escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Second Peter 1.14 is the putting off the old nature which is corrupt in lusts. And on the other side, or as much that such a change from a state of natural corruption is specified with this divine nature as its opposite. It is evident that this participation of the divine nature is to be understood of the contrary divine qualities and principles, but now made natural to the soul as their lusts once were. My assertion is yet more clear, inasmuch as the apostle also calls the communication of this new nature, the giving of all things belonging to life and godliness, that is, all inward principles, seeds, powers, and abilities of godliness in a spiritual life, and those as the roots and habits of all actions made natural. Now, look. Is there is a different mercy or grace in God out of which he bestows those gifts he gives unto men, whom in the end he does not save, different far from that mercy out of which he gives that grace and holiness which has salvation accompanying it. So, the like difference is to be found in the exertings of the degrees of his power out of which he works either his mercies that over all his works are styled common mercies, 
whereas to his elect they are peculiar, special mercies, called the sure mercies of David. Answerably, the works on temporaries flow but from his common providential mercies, only further heightened towards such than to others of mankind. It is therefore a subject worth of prosecution to show the disproportion of power which is seen in these two works, that the measure of the one may be mutually taken from each other. So, what use is the knowledge of this doctrine to us? Thomas Goodwin answers, the doctrine and knowledge, that there is only a temporary work in many professors, in many people who make a profession of being Christians. It's useful to sincere Christians for many holy ends. Peter declares it to those he wrote to, for, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. In the book of Jude it says, I will put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, he saved them from their duress, from their trials, but he afterward destroyed them. Why? because they believed not. The meaning of this is he would have them consider that the Israelites coming out of Egypt was a type of our common salvation, as he called it, verse 3. Yea, many of them came forth through a work of God upon them, for they believed, Exodus 4, verse 31. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. They had been in great distress, and man's nature is apt to believe and embrace news of deliverance in such a case, which was a great ground of that faith in many of them. But, however, this together with the sense of their bondage moved them to come out of Egypt. You read of the like faith upon the great visible deliverance at the Red Sea in Exodus 14, verse 31. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord, and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. But, Jude says, I would have you with this remember, that though their faith served to bring them out of Egypt, yet it was but a temporary faith, did not last. It did not serve to bear the condition of a wilderness. Their faith failed them as to perseverance, or to cheerfully go on into the good land, they would, if they could, have returned back into Egypt. And you know the sins they fell into, and concerning them too, dads, that God afterwards destroyed them that did not believe. And this he says, Though you know, yet I would have you remember and lay it to heart, is that which was God's aim and intent in this dispensation, in relation to those, their times, and the professors of it. It is of special use to you all, for this is a case of multitudes of professors that come out of a gross, sinful condition. They see their former estate to be a state of bondage and damnation, which is, is a coming out of Egypt, but their own lusts and their progress in the wilderness of this life ruins them. And what befell the Israelites is types, is for our instruction, 1 Corinthians 10.11. Now all these things happen to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And Jude tells them that when he set himself to write of our common salvation, verse 3, the Holy Spirit who dictated this epistle presented this caution and discourse about such temporary professors first to him to present to them 
delight to this also, does Paul in his epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 3 and 4, and 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, to the end. Know ye not, that they which run in a race, all run, but one receives a prize. So run, that you may obtain. Every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others I myself should be a castaway. He indeed in that chapter presents us under another scene and similitudes of the Olympic Games, in which many run, but one obtains, and so in Christianity many beat the air and run, but uncertainly. And how much our Savior insisted on this doctrine, you all know. How many parables in which he talked about it. That parable of parables, as he himself indicates it to be. Do you not understand to be of all other of the most concern to you and others? I mean, that of the sower and the several grounds. And a parable likewise of those that built their house on the sand, when others built upon a rock. Moreover, many speeches are scattered up and down to this effect, that many are called, but few are chosen. It has its usefulness to awaken to all professors, as our apostle terms those in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, to consider their state. The wise virgins sleep, Matthew 25, 4, as well as the foolish, and the noise of this doctrine rouses up such sooner than any other. But it is also a useful doctrine to quicken to renew, to make alive them again to holiness, and to endeavor to make their work sure. Thus it was wrought with Paul himself, and Paul makes use of it to quicken others, 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27. This teaching also exalts and magnifies to us the grace of God towards us, is that which has put so vast a difference between man and man, and things that are so alike to true grace, and it makes men come so near to the kingdom of God, who cause you to differ, says the apostle, from another, and that other perhaps had a mighty work upon him which caused him to profess more than ever you had done. Judas had a work upon him, as well as Peter, or the rest of the apostles, but what put the difference between them? God's free grace. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and I have lost none but the son of perdition. As his doctrine is in these and many other respects useful to us, so God himself has many holy and glorious ends in ordering such a dispensation to be found amongst professors. It is for his greater honor and glory, as he is Lord over his church, which is his house, to have, as in great houses there used to be, vessels, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor, and some to dishonor, these dispensations of God, short of regenerating grace, lay up manner for a great honor to the man Christ Jesus, as he is to be the judge of all the world and to give the exact account of every man's condition and ways and heart, and to judge of them accordingly. One would think that such a work of the Spirit as has so great a likeness, and that with a reality joined with it in the hearts and spirits of men, should make a great puzzle and blind at the latter day. How clearly to distinguish and discover to the men themselves and all the world that such professors as these were never truly regenerate. 
But this will turn to the greater glory to Christ, Hebrews 4, verse 12. Speaking of Christ, the Word, as the close of his speech, verse 13 shows, before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, of him thus considered as the Word, he says, he, the Word of God, is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God dispenses such lower workings, lower workings, common influences, though short of regenerating grace, to make way for a fuller conviction of all sorts of wicked men at the latter day, and to justify himself in his condemnation of them. The great design God does drive all along in this world upon the sons of men is to clear himself at that day, and to confound them who shall be condemned, at which day he will have a great deal to do with the hearts of men, to convince them, is Enoch, the seventh from Adam in his prophecies, saying Jude 14 and 15, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints, to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them, of all their ungodly deeds, and so on. And for the practical opinions of in men's hearts, the greater thing that God has to do with all men's hearts is his opinion that they generally will not see nor believe that corrupt nature in themselves is so corrupt and disabled to the attainment of that grace which only and necessarily must save them, but on the contrary think that they have anything that has the appearance of good in them, that they can do and may do much to the salvation of themselves especially if they are assisted and elevated by the Spirit of God, above what mere nature enables a man to do. God has, on the one hand, as much to do with men in this point as he has, on the other hand, to do with men in the breaking forth of their lusts into grosser sins. Men will not believe their own utter inability and their dependence wholly upon free grace and their total need of regenerating grace, and therefore by lesser experiments, lesser works of the Holy Spirit, short of an effectual calling. The failure of lower and inferior workings of his upon them, God goes about to convince them of this, their corruption and utter disability, and of the absolute necessity of their total dependence upon him, which yet they will not see. And therefore God justly leaves them here and works no further and thereby lays the foundation of justifying his condemnation of them in their several proportions and the rest of mankind, by the example of those that are wrought upon the highest, to wrought upon to a very high pitch, and yet it is short of saving grace. And so God provides for nothing more than the conviction of men at the latter day concerning the falsehood of their opinion of themselves in this respect. Quote Thomas Goodwin. Well, suppose you're hearing this, and it's scaring you. That's not my goal. We want to determine that which is the effectual working of the Holy Spirit, which will have its evidence in prayer to God. That's why I keep returning to this sermon, Hypocrites Deficient in the Duty of Prayer, because it gets to the bottom very, very quickly of the difference between the hypocrite, temporary believer, somebody who has experienced a common influences of the Holy Spirit from them that are born again. Let me just read these two paragraphs. Hypocrites are false professors, temporary believers. Never had the spirit of prayer given them. They may have been stirred up to the external performance of this duty and that with a great deal of earnestness and affection. 
and yet always have been destitute of the true spirit of prayer. This spirit of prayer is a holy spirit, a gracious spirit. We read of the spirit of grace and supplication in Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. Wherever there is a true spirit of supplication, there is a spirit of grace. The true spirit of prayer is no other than God's own spirit dwelling in the hearts of the saints. As this spirit comes from God, so does it naturally tend to God in holy breathings and pantings. It naturally leads to God to converse with him by prayer. Therefore, the spirit is said to make intercession for the saints with groanings which cannot be uttered. Romans 8 verse 26. But it is far otherwise with the true convert. He knows his work is not done, but he finds still a great work to do and a great wants to be supplied. He sees himself still to be a poor, empty, helpless creature, and that he still stands in great and continual need of God's help. He is sensible that without God he can do nothing. A false conversion makes a man in his own eyes self-sufficient. He says he is rich and increased with goods and is need of nothing, and knows not that he is wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. But after a true conversion, the soul remains sensible of its own impotence and emptiness, as it is in itself, and in sense of it is rather increased and diminished. It is still sensible of its universal dependence on God for everything. A true convert is sensible that his grace is very imperfect, and he is very far from having all that he desires. Instead of that, by conversion are begotten in him new desires, which he never had before. He now finds in him holy appetites, and hungering and thirsting after righteousness, a longing after more acquaintance and communion with God, so that he has business enough still at the throne of grace. Yea, his business there, instead of being diminished, is since his conversion rather increased, end quote. Next infallible sign is growth in grace. I'm quoting from Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander, chapter 13, Growth in Grace. When there is no growth, there is no spiritual life. We have taken it for granted that among the regenerate, at the moment of their conversion, there is a difference in the vigor of the principle of spiritual life, analogous to what we observe in the natural world, and no doubt the analogy holds as it relates to spiritual growth. It is often observed that there are Christian professors who never appear to grow, but rather decline perpetually until they become in spirit and conduct entirely conformed to the world from whence they profess to come out of. The result in regard to them is one of two things. They either retain their standing in the church and become dead formalists, having a name to live while they are dead, a form of godliness, while they deny the power of it, or they renounce their profession and abandon their connection with the church and openly take their stand with the enemies of Christ and not unfrequently go beyond them all in daring and piety. Of all such, we may confidently say, they were not of us, or undoubtedly they would have continued with us. End quote. So let me end this with a quote from The Grace and Duty Being Spiritually Minded by John Owen. Spiritually minded, that can only be 
is a habit and a fixed principle if a person is in fact born again. John Owen says, So it is with them who are spiritually minded, true Christians. Thus must it be with us all if we pretend to a title to that privilege. Christians, they're filled with thoughts of God in opposition to the character of wicked men that God is not in all their thoughts. And it is greatly to be feared that many of us, when we come to be weighed in, this balance will be found too light. Men may be in the performance of outward duties. They may hear the word with delight and do many things gladly. They may escape the pollutions that are in the world through lust and not run out into the same compass of excess and right with other men. Yet, they may still be strangers to inward thoughts of God with any delight and satisfactoriness or complacency. I cannot understand how it can be otherwise with them whose minds are over and over filled with earthly things. However, they may satisfy themselves with pretenses of their callings and lawful enjoyments or that they are not, anyway, inordinately set on the pleasures or profits of the world. To walk with God, to live unto Him, is not merely to be found in an abstinence from outward sins, in the performance of outward duties, though with diligence and the multiplication of them. And this may be done upon such principles for such ends, with such a frame of heart as to find no acceptance with God, it is our heart that he requires, and we can no way give them to him but by our affections and holy thoughts of him with delight. This it is to be spiritually minded. This it is to walk with God. Let no man deceive himself, unless he thus abounds in holy thoughts of God. Unless our meditation of him be sweet to us, all that we else pretend to will fell us in the day of our trial will fell us in that day. End quote. The Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded by John Owen. You have tuned in to The Voice of the Narrated Puritan. Class number 16 on an analysis of Christian experience and assurance. Spiritual gifts. Temporary work of the Holy Spirit conferred upon the unregenerate.